right, good morning again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 10? And as always, we like to welcome the uh, new folks. Good to see you this morning. Let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. Now, we have taken a little detour from our study in John's Gospel to do a little five-part uh, series. We are calling the Gospel the key to salvation. And we are basing this study on something that Jesus said in chapter 10, verse 9, where the Lord said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And in this verse, Jesus is calling himself the door that leads to salvation, a door that actually needs a key to open it, that key being the gospel. And so the gospel is to salvation what a key is to a lock. We've already been, we've been saying this for the last few weeks, but also we've been saying that we know that a key won't open a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted. It has to be straight and true if it's going to be able to open a, lo a locked door, and guys, the same is true with the gospel. And that's why the devil has been working very hard for the last 2,000 years to pervert and twist the gospel in an effort to keep the door of salvation locked to seekers. And guys, this is where we as the people of God come in. The Lord Jesus Christ has commissioned us to go into all the world preaching the gospel to the lost, which is why we must know the true gospel and be able to share it accurately with those we come in contact with. Now, at this point, some Christians would take issue with me, maybe get a little mildly offended. Okay. Of course I know the gospel, they would say. I'm saved, aren't I? All right. So how would you start a, a gospel presentation with somebody who is interested? A lot of Christians would say, well, I'd start off by telling them God loves them. Okay. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily motivate them to accept Jesus into their hearts, right? I mean, today, everyone thinks they're pretty wonderful. So, you know, you tell somebody, hey, God loves you. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people would come back. I know, I'm pretty special, uh, you know. And, and they may not put it in those words, but they're thinking it. See, that approach wouldn't prove they need Jesus as their Savior. Somebody might say, well, I tell them they need to receive Jesus into their heart because, you know, he'll give them peace and joy and fulfillment in life. Well, now you're becoming a salesman for Jesus. And this is the problem with so many Christians today who mean well. But in their zeal to see people saved, they have a tendency to become salesmen for Jesus, you know, packaging and presenting the gospel as a miracle product that a person just can't live without. You need Jesus. Okay, I mean, he is going to make your life happy and fulfilled and prosperous and so on. Boy, you see that or hear that message all across the radio and TV today. But see, that's the problem. Today, so many people, when they present the gospel, Christians, when they present uh, you know, a modern-day presentation of the gospel, they base it on how receiving Jesus will some way enrich the person's life you're presenting the gospel to. Of course, we know as Christians that, you know, receiving Jesus Christ into our lives has enriched us, has given us eternal life. So in that regard, yeah, but what I'm talking about is how, how many people today will focus on the emotional benefits to make you happy and give you peace, or the material benefits. He'll prosper your business, and uh, he'll, you know, give you a hundredfold return on whatever you give to him. 
that kind of thing. And so you see a lot of this today, and it's, it's really a, uh, a faulty gospel and definitely a faulty presentation of the gospel. So you might be thinking, okay, well then, how, how would you do it? Okay, uh, How would you start off presenting the gospel to somebody who is interesting? Well, I would do it, and I do do it, and hopefully you do too, the same way people like Peter and Paul did it in the book of Acts. As we have said numerous times, is you study the book of Acts and the gospel presentations, and the two apostles that come to mind that you see several times presenting the gospel, Peter and Paul, Nowhere in the book of Acts did they ever present the gospel to somebody, somebody based on how Jesus was going to enrich their lives materially. It's anathema. They would never do that. They didn't even base their gospel presentation on the love of God, although that's not wrong. We all enjoy talking about God's love. And that doesn't mean that we can't talk about God's love when we present the gospel to somebody, but you need to understand that if we're going to be very strict, biblical, kind of dogmatic on this issue, uh, the apostles presented the gospel primarily as a way for people, listen, to escape coming judgment. Guys, the gospel, as we have said, isn't a message that is designed to make people feel happy or good about themselves. The gospel is a warning for people to flee the wrath that is coming, judgment by taking refuge in Christ for safety. And that is why our first point with regard to a proper gospel presentation uh, of, the, of the proper presentation of the gospel is to warn people that there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming. Now, uh, as we've already said, this isn't really part of the gospel itself. In other words, this is not essential doctrine for somebody uh, to get to heaven. They don't have to believe in coming judgment to be saved. But this becomes kind of the introduction, the motivation to get them started moving in the direction of salvation, that there is judgment coming. Now listen, without any talk of coming judgment in your gospel presentation, well, the gospel is reduced from what I'll call an emergency warning siren, kind of like a tornado siren that goes off, we'll say, in the middle of the night. It wakes you out of a sound sleep. You don't wake up feeling refreshed and good and at peace. You wake up a little terrified because you know what that siren means. It means a tornado is coming. Something bad is on its way, and it has the potential to kill you. So you better take cover. You better take measures immediately to escape, to take refuge in a place that is designed to protect you, like a tornado shelter or some part in your house that you know is, uh, you know, a place where you can take refuge in. If you don't include talk of judgment in your gospel presentation, then the gospel is reduced to what I'll call happy talk. God loves you. He wants to give you peace. He wants to make you joyful. He wants to fulfill you. Well, those are all great things, and I'm not saying that your relationship with Jesus won't bring a lot of that into your life. It's just that that's not the whole gospel message. And this is how many people present the gospel, Christians present the gospel today, not urging them 
to uh, receive Jesus as a Savior who will save them from the fires of hell, but kind of, as a, they wouldn't put it this way, but I'll say it, if you're not going to talk about Jesus, the Savior, who saves people from the fires of hell, and you reduce the gospel to simply happy talk, all the wonderful things God's going to do for you, you reduce Jesus from Savior to a divine butler who only exists to make our lives more comfortable. First of all, any one of you who's a Christian knows this. When we got saved, did the Lord fix a lot of problems in our lives? Of course. Did we get a whole set of new ones? Yeah. Because now the devil's after us. He didn't really bother us too much when we were his. You know, we weren't a threat to his kingdom back then. But now we're children of God. Guess what? We have an enemy. In fact, that's where spiritual warfare comes in. We have an enemy, a very powerful, you know, uh, super intelligent, hyper malevolent spirit being known as the devil. And he commands an army, a demonic army, that has got one purpose in life to bring you down. Now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not that important where he's going to unleash his whole army against me or probably you. But this is the goal, to bring us away from God, to cause our walk to, to, to stumble and to fall and get us away from the Lord some way, that we're no longer a threat to his kingdom. You see, if you only tell people about the happy things the gospel will bring into their lives and don't explain to them, look, yeah, Jesus Christ, you know, God loves you, sent his son to die for you. I mean, there's, it's not hard to, to inter, intertwine God's love with, you know, how he's saved you or wants to save you from coming judgment. Just John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not have to perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. There you go. The love of God and the escape from coming judgment all in one verse. It's because God loves us that he did send his son that we might escape what's coming, the hellfire. It's not hard to mix those together. I'm just saying when you strip out uh, any talk of coming judgment, you're not sharing the true gospel. And you know what? People are going to maybe buy into that because people want to be blessed and happy and fulfilled and prosperous. But when adversity strikes... They're going to think you lied to them, which you kind of have because you haven't given them the whole truth. And what's worse is they're going to write Jesus off, possibly, and consider the gospel nothing but a bunch of lies and maybe turn completely away and try something else. Look, the, God, the New Testament is full of examples um, of, of how, you know, we present the gospel because, you know, uh, there's, there's judgment coming, and we don't want to see people uh, judged and go to hell. And that's the impetus for receiving Jesus Christ as our, our Savior. What is he saving us from? If you, if you don't tell people judgment is coming, then you say, but Jesus wants to save you. You tell people, well, save me from what? You know, save me from what? If you don't tell them about hell and judgment, then, then really what is he going to save them from? They, they don't understand that. There's no need. There's no, there's no motivation, no impetus to receive Christ. Well, he loves you. Oh, great. Okay, I, God loves me. I can still do what I'm doing. He can still love me. Well, no, it's not quite that simple. There is judgment coming. I'll just read you these scriptures. You can write down the reference, 1 Thessalonians 1, 
9 and 10. Talking, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians how they heard the gospel and received Jesus and how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath. That's a word for judgment from the wrath to come. John 3.36, Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him or her. Colossians 3.6, Because of these things, because of the fall and the sinfulness of mankind, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That's a term for unbelievers. All unbelievers are under the wrath of God. The judgment of God is abiding on them. They don't realize it many times. That's where we come in. You know, as they're having a great old time making money and having fun and whatever, they don't realize that the wrath of God, the judgment of God is hanging over their head. And as, uh, as um, one uh, great preacher said, uh, they're walking an icy plank over the pit of hell and at any moment their foot could slip and they will plunge headlong into everlasting destruction. People don't realize that. It does them no good for us not to tell them the truth in love, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath or to judgment, Christians, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is a day of judgment coming. That should get them thinking. That should get them kind of interested, hopefully. Maybe concerned that they want to hear the rest of what you have to say. And that's when you launch into the official gospel presentation, the first element being repentance. I do believe this happens to be essential for salvation. The word repentance, as we have said numerous times, is the Greek word metanoia, which literally means to have a change of mind. But in the New Testament, it's always connected with a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life, a change of actions, that kind of thing. And as we said last week, no one can be saved who isn't willing and wanting to have the course of their life change, listen, from rebellion against God to obedience toward God. I mean, anybody who thinks they can receive Christ and, and, and be heaven-bound while they still live in sin, I don't, I don't know where they're hearing that from, but we got to set the record straight with that, okay? Repentance is all about turning in your thinking you're going in the wrong direction, and now you want to turn and come toward God because you're moving away from God. And uh, very important that the idea is that, look, to be saved means you want to submit to God. You want to uh, make Jesus Lord. We'll talk about that more in a second. You want to surrender your life to the Lord, that, that he would take control and lead you uh, in, in his path for his glory. I don't see how you a person could be saved without understanding that and thinking they can have Jesus and still go on living in sin. Jesus himself said in Luke 13, we've quoted it several times, verses 3 and 5, he said, I tell you that unless you repent, you are going to perish, all of you. He repeats it in verse 5. He is telling us that, look, unless a person repents, they are going to perish, which means be sent to hell forever. That's the Lord Jesus talking. Turn to Romans 2. I'll have you turn to this one. Now, in Romans 2, Paul is talking to people in Rome, 
Some of them were not, were being obstinate. They had heard the gospel, but they weren't really receiving it. And so Paul kind of challenges them. Not wrong to do, of course. He said to them in verse 4, you know, do you despise the riches and goodness and forbearance and long-suffering of God, knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That's the goal. That's a synonym for salvation. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. In other words, Paul is saying we're all sinners apart from Christ and we are all under the judgment of God. Someday, if a person doesn't receive Christ, they're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, give an account, and will be judged for all the deeds they've ever done that violated all that God had said. And not only the deeds, but the thoughts and the words too. But if you receive Christ... And he talks about the forbearance of God, patiently waiting. It's a two-edged sword, Paul said. I mean, sure, God's grace and patience has given you time to repent, but every day you don't repent and keep living in sin, the wrath of God grows stronger and stronger upon your life. If you die in that condition, you know, what a horrible reality. That, you know, I told a man one time years ago, his wife was coming to the church. He was a Christian. Uh, he was not a believer. He was kind of obstinate about God. And uh, he got sick. He's 81 years old. I went to see him in the hospital. I forgot his name. But along the course of the conversation, I witnessed to him. And I said to him, look, God has waited 81 years to call you his son. He's not going to wait another 81 years. Unfortunately, I think he, he died without receiving Christ. He was just hard-hearted. And Paul is saying, sure, God is gracious and he's, he's, he's patient, giving you time to repent. But every day that you don't, you're storing up more and more judgment upon yourselves. Repent, get right with God, he loves you, and so on. Repentance. The third element or the third point in our outline, the second in the actual gospel message, is that Jesus Christ is almighty God Lord of all. Now again, as I said last time, none of these are profound. None of these are truths that you say to yourself, I never heard that before. Okay? This is as basic as it gets, and yet this is the gospel. As we share the gospel with people, and don't assume they know this. Many don't. You need to share with them that Jesus Christ is Almighty God, Lord of all. Now, as I said last time, this is an absolutely essential, critically important element of the gospel presentation, that Jesus Christ is almighty God in human form, the great I am. Without believing that, there can be no salvation. We've quoted John 8.24 several times in the course of this series. I'll quote it again. Jesus said, I said to you, that you will die in your sins. In other words, you will die and go to hell if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The he is not there in the Greek. What he is saying is, if you don't believe that I am, if you don't believe that I am the name of God, Jehovah God, you will die in your sins. Guys, this goes hand in hand 
with another biblical proclamation concerning Jesus Christ. Yes, that he is God Almighty, the great I am. Listen, Lord of all. This is not a different truth. It is basically the same truth, flip sides of the same coin. Jesus Christ is God Almighty, Lord of all. They go hand in hand. We talked about this last time. Let me just say this. I want you to think about this. Even the devil and his demons believe that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, the great I am, God in human form. But they are not saved. Why? I mean, if they believe everything we evangelicals believe about Jesus Christ being God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, then why aren't they going to heaven like us? Thank you. <laughs> what I'm thinking of right now, though, <laughs> what I'm thinking of right now is they're not going to heaven, they're not saved, because even though they believe the facts about Jesus, who he is, what he did, they have refused, and this goes back before God created the universe, physical universe, there's a rebellion in heaven led by Lucifer. They refused to commit themselves to those facts. In other words, they refused to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord over their lives, opting rather to live as rebels against the authority of God. Now, guys, this, in essence, is really the difference between the unsaved and the saved. Even though the unsaved often believe a lot of right things about Jesus, as a Roman Catholic growing up in the Catholic Church, my wife and I, I believed everything about Jesus Christ I believe right now. I believe he was the Son of God. I believe that he came down, became a man, uh, went around doing miracles, helping people, eventually went to the cross, and the third day rose again. I believed all of that. I wasn't saved. Why was I not saved? I mean, I had the information. I really believed it with all my heart. It's because I had not bowed to Jesus' authority. His, uh, the, the fa I had not bowed to the fact that he was Lord. I had not made him Lord in my life. He was not my master, right? This is the difference between someone who is unsaved and someone who is saved. It's off, often not the information. The devil has the same information we've got believes the same things about Christ we believe. But he's a rebel. His demons are rebels. And many people in this world who are churchgoers are rebels. They wouldn't think of it that way. As I look back, I wasn't like some rebels, but I certainly wasn't living for God. I certainly wasn't every day praying that God would lead my life, every decision praying that God would give me grace to know what he wanted me. No, I just did what I thought was right. In, in that regard, I was living for myself. I was doing my own thing. And, and Jesus Christ was not leading my life because he was not my Lord. As we said last week, the word Lord in the Greek is kurios. It's a word that describes someone who has total control of your life. In other words, your master. Your master. As we have said, salvation is inextricably linked to the doctrine that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, Lord of all. The reason these go hand in hand is because as God, listen, as God, he created all things, and therefore he has the right to control all things. We call it sovereignty. 
as God, he created all things, and therefore he has the right to control all things as Lord. And guys, as we have said, when it comes to Jesus being Lord, every person, the Bible says, who has ever lived is someday, if they haven't already, many have, but the Bible makes this very clear, someday every person who has ever lived, every rebel, every atheist, every whatever, is going to come up to Jesus and bow the knee and call him Lord. The difference between those who are saved and those who are unsaved that do that. Those of us who are saved have done it now while we're on the earth. Those who will do it on the day of judgment will do it then, but it'll be too late. We must believe Jesus is who he said he is, what he did. But what really saves us is not just that faith, because again, the devil and the demons have that faith. I had that faith before I got saved. You did too, maybe? It's acknowledging who he is and what he's done and saying, Lord, I surrender. I surrender to you. I want you now to take control of my life. I want you to be my master. I want you to guide my life. I'm done living for me. I've made a mess out of my life. Lord, you take control now. I believe that's what saving faith is all about. Very important. That brings us to the next point we want to look at today. We talk about presenting the gospel to people. Of course, and this sounds so obvious, but again, we have to, like Peter said, you know, I know this is familiar territory. You already know this. But he said, but I need to put, put you in remembrance of it. Of course, when you're presenting the gospel to somebody, you have to let them know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. That Jesus Christ died for their sins. Let me say this. When you present the gospel to people, you need to realize how many people, I don't know, maybe most, I don't know. It's getting worse and worse. It's helpful to remember or to understand how many people today view sin. You're presenting a Savior, right? Who wants to save them from their sin. It really is helpful if you understand how many people process the idea of sin. Let me just say this, first of all, many people today don't even believe there is such a thing as sin. In our culture, many have abandoned the idea of moral absolutes in favor of moral relativism. They believe that there are no moral absolutes. When I talk about moral absolutes, I'm talking about God's commandments, His laws, His righteous standard of right and wrong. Of course, if there is no absolute standard of right and wrong, in other words, if there's no laws of God, then there is no sin because sin is a violation of God's laws. You understand? But if God doesn't even exist, and many of these folks that hold to these views are atheists, Neo-atheism is on the rise, especially among young people. Why? Because they don't want to have God looking over their shoulder and telling them what to do and, 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 and judging them and, and having all that guilt. So get rid of God, get rid of the guilt. 
So a lot of young people today are neo-atheists. Paul said in Romans, uh, Romans 1.18, they only do it, though. They suppress the knowledge of God in their desire to live unrighteously. That's what's going on. But a lot of these folks are neo-atheists. And um, they don't even believe God exists. And if God doesn't exist, well, then neither do his command commandments exist, which causes them to say, I have not sinned because sin doesn't exist. They'll tell you things like, I don't sin, that's your truth. You know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Don't lay your truth on me, okay? I mean... When I have sex outside of marriage or lie to get that promotion at work or engage in homosexual activity or kill babies in the womb, that's not sin. That's my truth, and my truth says that's absolutely right to do. And so, again, these people don't believe there's such a thing as sin, and therefore, if there's no such thing as sin, that means that people are not sinners, and if people aren't sinners, they have no need for a Savior, which means Jesus' death on the cross is meaningless. Now, that's what you're up against. That's what I'm up against. That's becoming more and more the idea, the philosophy, the ideology of the world around us. You say, well, how in the world can I possibly break through that? Through prayer. Through prayer. I mean, especially we're talking, I mean, you bump into somebody on the subway or, uh, you know, somebody at the store and, Somehow a door opens up and you share the gospel. Okay, I mean, you know, you pray for them and pray while you're talking to them. But I'm talking about the family, friends, spouses, children, parents, people you, you come in contact with all the time that you love, you're very close to. Some of them are very hard-hearted. What do you, you shared the gospel. Sometimes it's led to a fight. You shouldn't fight, but sometimes they get very aggravated. But you don't come back and argue and yell back at them. You just back off. You don't yell somebody in the kingdom. You don't fight somebody in the kingdom, okay? If that was the case, God would have fought us into the kingdom. It doesn't work that way, okay? So you pray, and you keep praying, and you pray God softens their heart. And if you're not the right person for God to use because, you know, your family, and they know you, and they knew you before you received Christ, like they knew me, and they write us off because, you know, I knew. It's like the old Keith Green song, Keith Green song, the people in Nazareth didn't want to receive Christ as their Messiah because he grew up here and the Messiah doesn't grow up from little boys in Nazareth. I'm dating myself. Some of you young people are going, who is Keith Green? Google him. <laughs> um, you pray. So, so we're up against that kind of thinking. But when it comes to sin, there's another group of people that is gaining traction, building in numbers in our culture. Those that believe that sin is real, but then hold to the notion that it's no big deal. These folks are those who don't understand why Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for our sins. Their thinking comes along these lines. Their thinking is that, you know, God is love. For these folks... The words, God is love, transcends everything. So, you know, nobody goes to hell because God is love. He talks tough, but he's really a softy. Nobody really goes to hell. He just scares people, you know? God is love. You're living in sin. You're living with your boyfriend. God is love, you know? You're out there, you know, doing whatever, and this is wicked. God is love. God loves me. Yeah. Read 
uh, what is it, Mark 9? Rich young ruler, Jesus loved him, says, but he went away unsaved and probably died in his sins. It's because God loves you. We've talked about this. John 3.16, we just quoted it. For God so loved the world that I've told people, you know what? God's love is a wonderful thing. God's love can't save you. God's love has never saved anybody. What do you mean? All God's love can do is provide a way by which you might be saved. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. That's what God did out of love. What are we supposed to do? That whoever does what? Receives him. Won't perish in hell, but ever have everlasting life. So this idea that because God is love, he automatically saves everybody, that's universalism. That's not biblical. But these folks, God is love. You know, when it comes to, you know, Jesus having to die for us, God is love. And they believe God forgives people when they sin, and that's all there is to it. They, you know, the example they'll tell you is, you know, why make all this fuss about Jesus, you know, having to die for our sins? When my kids do something wrong, I just forgive them. I just forgive them. The same is true with God. When it comes to our wrongdoings, he just forgives us. No big deal. What are you making a big deal out of it? Oh, really? Well, that's interesting. Doesn't the Bible say the salvation of our souls is costly? It is a big deal. It was the biggest deal the human race ever faced. How does fallen mankind ever have peace with God? How do fallen men and women bound for hell without any hope of ever turning around because they had no way to save themselves from hellfire? How do they ever have fellowship with God and go and live in heaven forever? That's a big deal. That's the dilemma of the ages. But the thinking, the devil has dumbed down our society and he's beaten common sense, biblical common sense, out of Christians by just, you know, everything is, is, is kind of doctrine for dummies, right? When I first started to get into computers and I, you know, wanted to learn Word, I went out and bought Word for Dummies, Okay. It's a little humbling, uh, but I was a dummy. I didn't know anything about the program, word program. And I've used that for other things, these, those books, right? It's okay, you know, to get a book called Computers for Dummies. It's not okay to sit and be taught doctrine for dummies, where they dumb things down because you're too stupid. You know, to really understand. So I got to water it down. I got to keep you at perpetual, perpetual spiritual kindergartners because you're not able to, to understand the deeper things of God. That's me. You know, some pastors think I, that's my job. You just sit there and soak up the pablum as I dish it out. Sad. I, I know there are people who have come here over the years and it's like, man, that's it's a little intense at this church with all of this teaching. Okay, all right, yeah. But I would rather not teach you at this level where it's easy. You never grow, you never stretched. I'd rather make it a little, just like God made it for me. When I first got saved and he st steered me over to Chuck Missler, okay? You know Chuck Missler? And that's where he parked me and gave me the grace to understand at least somewhat. But it challenged me. It was like, here was the bar now. And now every day I was reaching to grow, to be stretched. 
This is what we're, we want to do here. We're a teaching church. We don't apologize for that. If it's too much, okay, you can find another church somewhere that's a little simpler. I don't know, but my goal is not to make a big church. It's to make strong disciples. I don't know how to do that any other way than to teach you the Word of God verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. But let me just say this to you. Uh, these people that say, Dave, you know, it's, it's, sin is no big deal. This, you sin, God forgives you. This thinking has led to a belief that is gaining momentum in the church today, and that is that Jesus' death on the cross, you know, didn't pay for sins, didn't really have to. Again, it's no big deal. It was simply his way of demonstrating, listen, servanthood. Hold on to that. First of all, let me just say this. The doctrine that Jesus' blood shed on, uh, the, the doctrine that Jesus' blood shed for us on Calvary's cross paid, or in other words, atoned for our sins, is what the theologians call penal substitution. Penal punishment, substitution, of course. Somebody else, a substitute, was punished in our place. Penal substitution, guys, is the foundation upon which the gospel is built. Without it, there is no gospel. Roger Oakland, in his book, Faith Undone, had this to say on this subject. Let me quote him. He said, and I quote, The heart and core of the Christian faith is based upon Jesus Christ shed blood at Calvary is the only acceptable substitutionary atonement for mankind's sins. The gospel message requires this foundation. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Thus, every person alive should, be, should receive the penalty of spiritual death, hell, because none of us is without sin since we are all born with our sin nature intact. Satan hates the gospel message. He understands what the gospel means, and his agenda is to deceive mankind from understanding and believing so they can suffer eternally with him. While Scripture is very clear about the necessity of Christ's death in order for us to be saved, some believe this would make God a bloodthirsty barbarian, end quote. Wow. And that's true because I know there are a number of church leaders, and you see them on TV, and they write books, and they speak at conferences. Who has them speak is beyond me, but they speak to large crowds. A lot of them are in the, the emerging church movement, and a lot of these guys give uh, lip service to the cross, but then they deny the efficacious atoning power of Jesus' shed blood to purchase our salvation. So what is the cross then? Was it reduced to a piece of jewelry I wear around my neck? Did it have any purpose at all? One of these leaders, I'll just quote him, talked about Jesus going to the cross. He said, and I quote, this was an example of sacrifice and servanthood that we should follow. But the idea that God would send his son to a violent death for the sins of mankind, well, that is not who God is. A loving God would never do that. Such a violent act would make Christianity a slaughterhouse religion, end quote. What? Uh, come on up, we'll talk about it. Isn't that exactly what the Christian faith is? Am, am I reading my Bible wrong? Turn to Isaiah 53. If the indictment is Christianity is a slaughterhouse religion, I have to tell you, you're right. That's biblical. You're coming against the word of God when you oppose that doctrine. Let's look at Isaiah 53, verse 7, then we'll back up and read verses 5 and 6. Because I want to bring in this idea of, of, of 
salvation of Christianity being a slaughterhouse religion. Isaiah 53, verse 7, talking about Jesus Christ, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led, led like a lamb to the what? Slaughter. And as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Why did he go through all that for us? Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace with God was upon him. By his stripes, his whipping, his scourging, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of, its, of us all. That's penal substitution. Look, guys, sin, all sin, in whatever vile form it takes, is an affront to God who is holy and righteous and pure and absolutely incapable of having fellowship with anyone that has sin upon their soul, unless that sin, of course, has been atoned for through blood sacrifice. As one author rightly put it, you can't cover something as vile as sin with taffeta and lace. It takes blood, which means something or someone had to die, end quote. Under the Old Covenant, that something were the animal sacrifices, the blood of which temporarily covered sin so the Jews could have fellowship with God. Under the New Covenant, that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who alone could take away our sin, which he did. We read in the book of Genesis, you don't have to turn there, how God proclaimed in the very beginning, the soul that sins shall surely die but then mercifully allowed for a substitute to die in the sinner's place to atone for that sin. And so when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their eyes were open, and they knew for the very first time they were naked. In other words, they knew that they had sinned. They had violated something God had commanded they not do. This brought shame and guilt into their hearts and immediately caused them to want to cover the shame of their nakedness. As we have said, as human beings, we can't function in an environment of guilt and shame for too long before wanting to alleviate it. And so many people often do the very thing Adam and Eve did. When they sin, they try to cover their shame and do away with their guilt through the works of their hands. In Adam and Eve's case, they sewed fig leaves together in an effort to cover their shame. And as we have pointed out numerous times, this was the beginning of religion on the face of the earth. The word Genesis means beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and no sooner than we see the beginning of sin upon the earth, we see the beginning of religion. Religion is man's efforts to cover his guilt and shame before God through the works of his hands. Again, as a Roman Catholic, this is what we were taught. You, you commit sin, you come to church, you go to Mass, because you go to Mass, you earn little installments of grace by which you can purchase salvation. Eventually, you earn salvation. But you go ahead and you light the candles and you pray the rosaries, keep the ceremonies. You do all the... You've sinned. You've got you've to then balance it out by doing all kinds of good religious things. That covers your guilt. Atones for your sin. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. God didn't accept Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their nakedness through the works of their hands. 
We read in Genesis 3.21 how God killed a couple of animals and covered Adam and Eve, covered fallen mankind, you might say, with the skins. Why? Because fig leaves weren't good enough to cover somebody's nakedness? Of course not. God was laying down a, a, a principle, a doctrine, at the very beginning when man first sinned. And that is that was to communicate to them and to all of us that only through a blood sacrifice could sin be covered or atoned for. One of my favorite verses on this is Leviticus 17, verse 11, where God said, I have given you the sacrifice upon the altar to make atonement for the soul. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Of course, the word atonement in Hebrew is the word kapar, which means a covering. Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the day of covering, okay? For the Jewish people to have fellowship with God, their sins had to be atoned for or covered. And God wanted them to know right up front, you're not going to do it by your good works. I mean, even keeping the law, that's not going to do it, okay? Ultimately, might cover your sins temporarily as you offer the sacrifices, but definitely not, uh, you know, definitely not being good, quote-unquote, whatever that means, or keeping commandments or offering rituals to God was going to do it. It would take a blood sacrifice. Now, when you tell people that today, many of these sophisticated, quote-unquote, folks recoil in horror at the message of Christianity. They call the Christian faith barbaric. They call it a bloody religion. Folks, let me just say this. Blood atonement isn't a pretty thing. It was never intended by God to be nice, neat, sweet, and sophisticated, okay? It is barbaric. You know why? Because sin is barbaric. Sin kills. The only way for us to have eternal life is for someone to, have, to die in our place. Of course, that someone is Jesus Christ. You go look at, as I was telling first service, you know, you read about the priestly garments in the Old Testament, how beautiful they were. And, you know, again, being raised in the Roman Catholic Church, the priest would don these, these very beautiful garments to do the Mass, which in the Roman Catholicism was a reenactment, actually was a, a replication of Jesus' death. Of course, when the priest was done, uh, he looked just as good as when he started, right? If you were to go to... Could, could somehow jump into a time capsule and go uh, back into the Old Testament times. You see the priest walking out with all that beautiful, nice clothing, right? At the end of the day, after offering how many sacrifices for sin, he looks like he... Go to a, a, a slaughterhouse and see how those guys look at the end of the day. Covered in blood and stuff. God never intended this to communicate to people this is a sophisticated you know, kind of a thing where it's nice and neat and clean and so on. Sin is messy. Sin is barbaric. Sin brings death. And, 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 and it's life for life, God said. So when you sin, the soul that sins shall surely die. You got to bring something else that's living to, to die in your place. Thank God we're not under that system any longer. Jesus died once for all on the new covenant. Let me just say this to you, though. What used to be common knowledge, uh, basic Christianity is now being reinvented, reinterpreted. These are, things are changing in the church. We're in the last days. People are ashamed of the gospel, the very gospel I'm trying to teach you to share with people. It is bloody, okay? But today, 
because people want to be sophisticated and they don't want to scare people off because of all this bloody talk. They're reinventing the gospel. One Episcopalian priest named Alan Jones, who's very popular in the emerging church movement, wrote a book called Reimagining Christianity. Yeah, reinventing. We have to reimagine it because we don't like it. We don't like historic Orthodox Christianity. Too barbaric, too bloody. We got to reinvent it. And so uh, he said this, and I quote, the church's fixation on the death of Jesus as the universal saving act must end. And the place of the cross must be reimagined in the Christian faith. Why? Because the cult of suffering and the vindictive, because of the cult of suffering and the vindictive God behind it. See, this is what he thinks, okay? The cult of suffering. If you believe that Jesus suffered and died for your sins, you're in a cult. That's what he's saying. The other threat of just criticism addresses the, the suggestion implicit in the cross that Jesus' sacrifice was to appease an angry God. Penal substitution was the name of this vile doctrine, end quote. As we have said, all throughout the Old and New Testaments, biblical atonement was always based on blood sacrifice. We talked about uh, uh, Leviticus 17, verse 11. How about uh, Hebrews 9, verse 22? Uh, According to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. Of course, under the New Covenant, the blood that was shed was the Lord Jesus Christ's blood. Look, we're, we're almost done. Let me just say this, okay? When Jesus hung on the cross, just before he died, he said, it is finished, right? In the Greek, the word, the word is tetelestai, which means, it could be translated, paid in full. Paid in full. Now, Paul, when he was thinking about this in Ephesians 1, verse 7, he said, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Greek word translated forgiveness in Ephesians 1, verse 7, literally means to send away, to send away. That was the Jewish concept of sin, Yom Kippur, right? They would take the two goats, they would confess this, uh, they would take one and sacrifice one goat, and then they would confess all the sins of the nation unto the other, and a priest would take it down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, out into the Judean wilderness, let it go, signifying their sins had been taken away, removed. That was the mindset. Of course, the word actually means or speaks of canceling a debt or, listen, granting a pardon. Here's the thing. A pardon... If you're going to be pardoned, okay, that's what forgiveness is, a pardon must be accepted if it's going to benefit a guilty man or woman, those who have violated God law, God's laws. Uh, there's a, an incredible uh, illustration of this. I, you've heard me share it before. True story. Talking about a pardon, right? And it only is meaningful if you receive it. Back in 1830, there was a man named George Wilson. He was convicted of robbing the United States mail and was sentenced to be hanged. I haven't found out why President Andrew Jackson pardoned him. I haven't dug it out. I probably will one of these days. But uh, for some reason, President Andrew Jackson issued a full pardon for Wilson. But when they came to Wilson with the good news, he refused the pardon. Uh-oh, now what? Nobody's ever refused a pardon from a death sentence. It threw our country into chaos. They didn't know what to do. Finally, it worked its way into the Supreme Court, where Chief Justice Marshall concluded that 
Wilson would have to be executed. Here's what he said. He said, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. John the Apostle said of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, 1 John 2, verse 2, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Because all people are guilty. We're all sinners. And so, guys, when Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished, he was saying that the work of redemption had been completed, sin had been paid for, and God had now issued a pardon, a full pardon to every man or woman that would ever live, not just when Jesus died because God saw Jesus on the cross. Revelation 13, 8, uh, he was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever created the world, he saw Jesus on the cross. So people in the Old Testament got saved by faith looking forward to the cross. We get saved looking backward to the cross by faith. It's all the cross, all the cross. When Jesus died on that cross, God issued a full pardon to every man, woman that would ever live on the face of the earth. This pardon is available for the asking. Well, actually, you might say this. God's extending it to you. It's a gift, but you have to receive it. It's not a reward to be earned. It's a gift to be received by faith. Of course, Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In John chapter 3, I don't have time to read it to you, verses 16 and 18 talks about how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever believes in him would not have to go to hell but would have everlasting life. He goes on to say in verse 18, but what people don't know is that apart from me, apart from Christ, they are already condemned. Already condemned. Mankind has been declared guilty and condemned by God who is the righteous judge of all the earth. The case is over. The verdict has been rendered. In the Garden of Eden, God pronounced all human beings, all descendants of Adam, guilty sinners, doomed to spend eternity in hell. And yet in his mercy, God, through his son, Jesus Christ, is offering the human race a pardon. But remember, a pardon is worthless unless it is accepted. A pardon that was bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. I don't know all you here today. Can I just challenge you? If you have not already, please receive God's pardon in your life today while there is still time. Tomorrow was not promised to anyone. Guys, that's what the gospel is. It's presenting God's pardon to guilty and condemned sinners. A pardon that will do them no good if they don't receive it by receiving Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what we're presenting people. That's the gospel. Now, we're done. You're thinking, you want me to share all of that, what you just said when I present the gospel? No. No, but you need to have a working knowledge so that if somebody says to you, well, why did Jesus have to die for me? I'm a good person. Now you understand a little bit what the Bible is actually saying. And the good thing about it is my pastor used to say it's a wonderful thing to teach God's word because we have to study five times the information that we're going to actually present to people. So this is designed to teach you a lot more than you'll ever probably share with any one person at any given time. 
But you know what? There is a real problem today with dumbed-down Christians. I don't put you guys in that category. You know what? We don't want to be that way. We want to be able to articulate why, what the gospel is and why, you know, what the Bible says about people as sinners and so on. So may God give us grace to be faithful in presenting the gospel to the people of this world. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for allowing us the privilege of going out into all the world and preaching your good news, the gospel. Give us grace to preach it accurately, faithfully, and Lord, leave the results with you. Only you can open eyes, only you can change hearts. But give us grace, Lord, not to water it down, not to become salesmen for Jesus, but to just give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us, God. Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.